You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. The folk music of protest, as well as celebrating a positive thing, has always existed, will always exist. It doesn't matter whether Top 40 decides to play it or not. Singer, songwriter, Holly Near. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Holly Near first sang in public when she was just eight years old. Now, a few years later, she launched her career for real, and in the 50-plus years since then, she's established herself as a folk music legend. Now, of course, she calls herself a troubadour. Shut down by a nameless fire One early day in May Some people cried out angry You should have shot more of them down But you can't bury youth, my friend Youth grows a whole world around She's also a talented actress. Starting in the late 60s, early 70s, she appeared in episodes of The Mod Squad, All in the Family, The Partridge Family, as well as on Broadway in the musical Hair. Near is also a member of the LGBTQ community and has been a strong supporter of gay rights for decades. I met her in 1990 when she wrote an autobiography called Fire in the Rain, Singer in the Storm. So here now from 1990, Holly Near. Why did you write this book? I know some people think I'm a little young to write an autobiography. Uh, I wanted to write it for two reasons. One is I think there's a kind of nostalgia going on about the 60s, as if it was the only decade that ever existed in the history of all humankind. And I felt like there was some extraordinary work that took place in the 70s and 80s of taking the ideas of that cultural revolution of the 60s and then pragmatically putting it to work. I wanted, through the stories that I tell in the book, people I've met all over the world who I think are the real heroes and heroines who are keeping... Uh, human dignity alive. I wanted to tell their story and be a voice for them as well as to honor the 70s and 80s. And the other reason was of doing it now as opposed to waiting till I'm a wise old 80-year-old woman is that when I write that book, I will have this glorious detachment that comes with hindsight. And this book, I wanted to have it still be in the middle of the storm, if you will, where there's the immediacy, there's the intensity, the questions are still unanswered. Now, many people think that the 60s were a, an ideal time to be a folk singer because you had these twin struggles of the civil rights and Vietnam, and there's nothing out there today that would, would compare with, with those kinds of struggles. No, there's nothing, in other words, to sing about. There are no protest songs today. There's, there's, and, I, and I can't help but wonder, uh, for, for someone who, who is into folk music, is do actions inspire songs or do songs inspire actions? 
Well, the, the folk music of protest, as well as celebrating a positive thing, has always existed, will always exist. Mm. It doesn't matter whether Top 40 decides to play it or not. There will always be songs about people's struggles. And although we remember the hardships of the, the war in Vietnam and of certainly the civil rights movement, those problems have not changed. We still have war all over the world. We still have racism everywhere. We have huge problems in our cities. We have problems for our farmers in rural areas. We are living with an extraordinary crisis, world crisis called AIDS, which has affected both the gay community, the Haitian community, the African communities, and now in the urban areas it's becoming the largest killer of women and children. We're dealing with extraordinary homelessness and poverty all over the world. So there is no shortage of subjects to write about if one wants to express the human condition. And it's just whether the songwriters who are doing that get the kind of exposure to their music that might have happened during the 60s. But just because you don't hear it on the radio, you should never assume it's not happening. I started a record company about 17 years ago, which is now a nonprofit arts organization called Redwood Cultural Work, and we try to find that music from around the world and make it accessible to people through our mail order catalog and also through distribution into to stores around the world. Because people, people who don't know this music exists doesn't mean they don't want to hear it. It just means that they can't find it on the top 40. So we're trying to make these ideas accessible to people. Did you never consider becoming just another pop singer who would go from album to album and go from concert to concert, make a buck, put it in the bank, never become controversial, just to watch your name on the charts with a bullet, and <laughs> have a nice career that way, and then retire in seclusion somewhere in the south of France? Did that, that lifestyle never appeal to you? The thought of going to the south of France occurred to me. <laughs> no, I, uh, I certainly have thought about having an established career out in the mainstream. But, I, um, you know, my life is so interesting. When you give up the idea that, that the only forms of success have to do with economic wealth and security, then you discover a whole other world out there, which makes for a much richer memory. I will look back on my life and have a lot more to remember than top 40 hits. On the other hand, my dramatic dream when I was growing up was to be a Broadway star. I wanted nothing more than to use my dance and act and, and music skill on stage. And that dream hasn't gone away. I've just been too busy to actualize it. But I do hope sometime to do a show on Broadway. I do want to get involved in films again, as I had in the late 60s and early 70s. I do, when I walk on stage, even though my songs have content and raise questions. I also sing romantic love songs and, and deal with issues of relationships. And when I walk on stage, all of these things I care about are deep inside of me, but that moment in time I'm an entertainer. And I feel like if I'm going to invite an audience to come and listen to me sing, they deserve to have my very best vocal interpretation, my very best live show that I can give them. And I work hard to keep that together as an artist, not to ever slough off. Now, correct me if I'm, if I'm, if I read it wrong. You are an atheist? No, I no? don't, I didn't okay, I'm sorry. say I, that. I, That's okay. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I, misund I misunderstood then, the, then no. uh, that in there. And I, I, because I became curious when I thought that's what I had read as to how someone could have such a, a well-developed conscience, a social conscience and an awareness who's an atheist. Well, I'm never sure exactly what being an atheist means. Uh, I have never belonged to organized religion, but I have a, a deep 
spiritual connection to humanity and to this planet. I feel like, you know, we live on the only planet we know that's anything like this, and this, this planet is spinning through space at an unimaginable rate of speed. And if, if one lets that sink in, you have to have a spiritual question somewhere in your body, like, how, how, who are we and what are we doing here and how did we get here? And I also believe very deeply that being alive means one is the essential connection between the past and the future, and one has to take responsibility for that. When did it fully sink into you that you had passed your 35th birthday and hadn't died? <laughs> <laughs> when, when did the reality of that really hit you? Well, in 1984, uh, that's when I was to be 35, and I had had a a kind of a vision or a sensation earlier in my life that that was when it would be over. And it didn't frighten me. I was, I was raised in a family that dealt quite openly and honestly that if you're born, you die. Nobody comes on to this life without dying. I mean, nobody gets exempt from that. And the only question is, and the, and the, the magic and mystery of it is when and how. So... Um, I thought my, my time was had come. But I, I realize now in hindsight that uh, perhaps the sensation I had that I would die had to do with that a certain kind of panic, a certain kind of stressful life behavior was going to reach its peak and then subside and a new way of living would would come to me, I stopped being so stressed out and so full of worry and, and so hard on myself and regained a new kind of, um, of calm. And, and so maybe there was a death that took place then, a, a death of the frantic and replaced with a life of, of much more um, kind of centered calmness, mm-hmm. of more peace. Another paradox struck me as I was reading your book. You strike me as a person who... who deeply values her privacy, yet I couldn't help, no reader can help see the extent, the detail to which you told us about your sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you resolve that? Is there a paradox there? There is. I think if I had my druthers, I would be a very private person. I continue to be a private person. But I also feel that issues of sexuality are so volatile that it makes them political. Uh, they they are no longer personal issues because people use their opinions and their feelings about sexuality to abuse one another. They're, for example, homophobia, the anti-gay sentiments. People get beaten up. They get killed. Their children get taken away from them. So sexuality all of a sudden becomes a political issue. And similarly, in, in heterosexual relationships, domestic abuse and the fact that Certain churches don't want us to teach our children about condoms and safe sex in an era when AIDS could could kill them in a minute without that information. So to me, sex is a natural phenomenon. All kinds of, of sexual choices have been around since the beginning of time. It is when people decide to make moral judgment about sex that it becomes a political issue because it affects people's freedom of choice. To me, what's immoral in relationship to sex isn't sex unto itself. It's the violence that is associated with sex. It's abuse. It is, it is what, the kind of attitudes that lead to accusations that destroy people's lives. And it's that element that I'm critical of, not sex in and of itself. Sex is a very beautiful, healthy human phenomenon. And I didn't see how else to um, talk about the issues in a, in a very real and vulnerable way unless I was willing to put my own 
life on the line around these issues to say, this is my sexuality. And I would have liked very much to not bring that forward. But I think when we are dealing with life and death issues, it's important to personalize those issues and not keep a kind of intellectual detachment. But also, isn't there the element that your fans know you so they've been following your career all these years. They know what kind of controversy has dogged you, has followed you around, and they'd probably be disappointed if you didn't say something about it. Yeah, I think they, they would. It would be a startling um, blank chapter in the book had I not dealt with issues of sexuality. And at the same time, um, I kind of ask my audience, I think now and after the book is out, to understand the difference between trying to make a lesson clear by putting my own life out there and at the same time say, please respect my my privacy and my personal life. And it is a strange contradiction in terms in some ways, but I, I do believe there's a difference between my choosing to discuss sexuality, which includes the discussion of heterosexuality and homosexuality and celibacy and bisexuality. Uh, and at the same time, I don't really want somebody following me around asking me all the time who I'm going out with. That's, you know, that's my business. After this short break, Holly Mears' advice for up-and-coming songwriters. back to my 1990 conversation with Holly Near. You have such a deep affection for your parents, and I can't help think how many people I know who can't stand their parents. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what is there that, that creates that bond, that affection that, that you and a, f- a very special few other people have? Well, in our case, I think it was because my parents respected us as human beings. They didn't have an authoritarian power imbalance where they said, we're your parents, so we're the smart ones, we're the ones that make all the decisions. As long as you live in our house, you do what we tell you to do. Uh, Instead, they really respected us as human beings, and they felt that in doing so, we would learn to think as human beings. We wouldn't learn to think as subservient individuals or as victims in a power imbalance. For example, when... I wanted to go out on a Friday night. I lived in a rural community on a farm. And so you take the car and you you go out. You could get a flat tire on a country road coming back from a party, and there'd be no way for them to know that. So we had kind of a deal that I would say, okay, I want to be home at midnight. And they would say, if you aren't here by one minute after midnight, we will assume something's wrong. If you're at the party and you want to stay an extra hour, call us. Call us and say, hey, I'm going to come home at 1 instead of 12. That way they didn't have to worry. But they also knew that maybe the party was going on fine, and there was no reason that there was some magic number of 12 that meant I should come home. As long as I was having a good time, everything was safe, 12, 1, it didn't matter. So they respected my uh, decision-making capabilities, and when someone respects that, then you start to realize maybe you have to be responsible. And they said, you know, we all live together in this house. And when you live together, you have to live as a unit. You have to live as a group. You have to understand one another. And they gave us that room, and then they wanted that room in exchange. So it really has to do with a a respect that they offered. And consequently, I think all of us in our family learn to respect other people in the world at large. You by our, our family example. But you didn't grow up in riches, uh, nor in poverty, uh, per se, but it, it was a very, in other words, material things didn't seem to matter a whole lot. That wasn't first on your family's priority list. 
No, it wasn't. Um, music was real big. We didn't have a television uh, for until I was 13 years old, and we moved to a slightly bigger town. We didn't have electricity at the early early <laughs> days. Uh, we had a wind-up gramophone record player, and then finally we got a generator, and we had electricity and, and got a record player. And in the nights after my mom would come in from finishing milking and my dad would come in from a long day out in the field, and we'd have dinner, and, and then we'd all entertain each other. We'd sing for each other and do little play acts or we'd listen to music or read books. My grandmother did a lot of reading out loud of all the great classics. And um, I think that that environment of, of permission for creativity was also very, very good. It, it encouraged expression of ideas. And when you express yourself, you let off a kind of steam that if it's repressed, if it's kept in, you end up fighting on the playground. But when you have a chance to, to let those feelings out in a creative way, I don't, I don't think you're as combative. Are your mom is still living? My mother's still living. She's 73, 74 years old. She still travels. She and her twin sister went biking in Ireland. Uh, she went with me to uh, El Salvador when I went to sing at the first and only peace music festival that's ever happened there. It was a very dangerous journey. And I called her and told her I'd been invited to come, in some ways as a witness. The Salvadorian artists needed protection from their own government there, and they wanted musicians from around the world to come be part of it and I told her I was going and she said great that's very brave of you and I got a call 10 minutes later and she said I'm going with you <laughs> if I'm going to be worried I'd rather be worried with you than without you and um, she's an extraordinary woman she went with me to Nicaragua and, and she's a great writer she writes a lot of wonderful letters to the editor she's sort of become known in the town of Ukiah as the the voice of progressive thought and if anybody ever wants to know what to think about a subject they open the paper and there's a letter to the editor from my mother that's kind of leading the way and I, I'm very proud of her I love her a lot I, I get the feeling though she's probably not known as quote Holly Near's mother She's probably very much known as Anne Near. Yes, she is. She's very known as Anne Near. On the other hand, um, there are people who, when they finally figure out that she's my mom, will will say things like, oh, you're Holly Near's mother, and she'll laugh and say, is that a good thing? <laughs> like, where, where we stand here? She's very, very sweet about it. Uh, she feels very fortunate, actually, and I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but to be my mom because... She likes being the mother of a child who's gone out into the world and actually brought new ideas back to her. She feels she gave her best shot to us as we were growing up, but now she really likes that we bring home new and challenging ideas. She has no desire to fall asleep, to be done with progressive thought. And there's this idea that old people are conservative and, and lonely and uninvolved, and, and my mom really uh, challenges that stereotype. But she feels a way that she can stay alert to new ideas is to have this very important relationship with young people. I would say the, the, the joyful thing about being a troubadour, about being a storyteller, and this is what I, I really, if I have a self-definition, that's what it is. As I go out into the world, I try to sponge up everything I can, pay attention, and I would encourage new songwriters to learn this skill of, of always watching, always having a pen around to write down on a napkin what you see and feel. And notice that there are 10, 20, 30 different ways to tell the same story. And if you don't go and learn about multicultural responses, if you don't 
ex- expect that your way of thinking is only one of many ways of thinking. And if you want to really tell stories, you can't always tell it through your own voice. You need to be alert to other voices, and it will make your music so much more exciting. So as a troubadour, as a songwriter, as a storyteller, uh, whether it's in my music and in my albums that I put out or whether it's in the book, it is a delightful and challenging mix of my person, because obviously the songs and stories pass through me, but also a, a deep respect and curiosity about the people I'm writing about, letting some part of their own voice be, be heard, even though it's joined up with mine. And, and that's my, my great joy. Holly Near will be 74 in June and still performs regularly. And you can find easy Amazon links to Holly Near's book at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure and listen to my interviews with two other towering figures in folk music. My 1987 interview with Judy Collins. The more I thought about all the possibilities of the book titles, I felt that Trust Your Heart made the most sense. It seems to me it's the one thing that's really governed my life, led me to do things that I wanted to do. And my 1992 conversation with the one-of-a-kind Pete Seeger. I would like to see people singing even when they're not with friends they know. I'd like to see people singing while they're waiting for the bus. (laughs) Just us, waiting for the bus, just us, waiting for the bus, just us, waiting for the bus, Mr. Driver, won't you please come soon? And of course we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, you may have heard recently that some of her books were banned by a school district in Florida. So we'll revisit my 2004 conversation with author Jody Pico. Everyone is a hero in this book and everyone's a villain, which is, I think, the way it pretty much is in real life, too. You know, we want to blame someone. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.